You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Good morning, everybody. Um, It's so good to be with you uh, this morning. Um, I am super excited uh, today because we just finished up last week. Um, our series in the book of Acts. It was a great eight-week study of an important um, period in the history of the church and an important like dynamic of our faith, the work of our Holy Spirit. Now we're going into something really cool. I had the distinct privilege uh, and pleasure of welcoming us all this morning into a new series um, as a church. Or really, it's like a three-week mini-series, uh, if we're being honest. Uh, but it's into the book of Psalms. Uh, Now, Psalms is one of the most well-known books in the Old Testament, and it's arguably one of the most well-known books in the entire Bible, right? If you've been with us at Illini Life for a while, uh, you know that we make every bit as much of an effort to study the Old Testament as the New Testament. The Gospels, um, the Pauline letters, the the whole nine yards, because the Old Testament plays just as great a role in illuminating, like, the complex and mysterious and beautiful relationship between God and his people. And sometimes that connection isn't like immediately obvious, especially for modern so-called like New Testament Christ followers. But one of the things I really love about the Psalms, um, and one of the many reasons I'm excited to be going through them uh, as a church with you over the next few weeks, um, is that I think the Psalms brings that connection out a little bit more readily than a great many other parts of scripture and a great many parts of the Old Testament, right? I think we'll find we can look at the Psalms and recognize them and appreciate them very quickly for what they are. And you could go into an entire sermon, like, on its own on what exactly the Psalms are. You know, literally, suffice to say, we can think of the Psalms quite simply as worship songs, right? Songs, Psalms, you get it. Sometimes it's explicitly a song. Sometimes it's just like a verse. But in all cases, what we see in the Psalms are intensely human responses to a good but unfathomable God. Leave the key words in there, I think, intensely human. Psalms has 150 chapters in it, big old book. And each chapter has a different Psalm, different work of verse, and each Psalm a different expression, right? Many Psalms are overtly praiseful. They express a heart of joyfulness, gladness towards the Lord. In many Psalms we see our laments uh, where their authors are coming from a point of deep despair, sadness, maybe even anger. Right away, we move away from the sort of narrative or didactic style, a teaching-oriented style that we see in other parts of Scripture, right? We move into something that feels very different. It feels very raw. We're talking to people in their small group discussions from the past week, and, you know, we went through a psalm or two uh, together um, in our small groups this week, probably the most frequent comment I heard was, wow, these passages are so short. Oh my gosh, I love this. This is like so much more accessible. Uh, <laughs> laughter of recognition from Maddie. <laughs> right, it's a different feel, right? And maybe it's in an encouraging way for you. Maybe it's in an unfamiliar or frustrating way for you. Um, and so you may return to that question that keeps popping up when we talk about Old Testament scripture. What do I do with this? Right, so here's the plan for this morning. We're going to go through the very first psalm that we see recorded in this collection, Psalm 1, together. Because Psalm 1 serves very much as a framework, as a point of reference for how we can look at this awesome, divinely inspired 
body of work, right? It's not, of course, a whole cliff notes on the whole Psalms, um, but it introduces us to a pretty significant theme that rings out throughout the other 149 Psalms and is a critical to relating this book to our lives as Christ followers today. And that theme is the theme of internalizing God's understanding of righteousness and God's understanding of wickedness. But I'm going to pray before I do that. Uh, so I invite you to join me in doing that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for these awesome works, Lord, for these psalms um, that you have stirred up in your people um, over many years, God, and who have, and like how they've been used to stir up others even long after the psalms were written. Um, be with us as we seek to wrestle with these, wrestle with the emotion behind them, wrestle with um, the problems and the frustrations and the joys and the trials that inspired them and that drive them, Lord. Um, and may that drive us to a closer understanding of what it means to be in relationship with you and of who you are and of your goodness and of your faithfulness. Um, and if anything I say this morning takes us away from that understanding, Lord, may it, may it go away and may it be struck away um, from the hearts and minds and ears of people here. Um, we love you, Lord, and it's your name we pray. Amen. So we open to Psalms, right? We're faced with the first couple. There are these short little six-verse interventions. We ask ourselves, what do we do with these? How do we think about these? I am destroying people's music down here. I apologize. <laughs> as I mentioned, so Psalm 1 specifically gives us one of many frameworks, or reference points to understand these from. But there are a few broader points of understanding that we want to keep in mind first. Right? Firstly, and I alluded to this earlier, right? the Psalms are a framework for worship. They're a guide for what Bryn and John and Bryce so beautifully led us through this morning, singing and responding to God with our voices from a place deeper than just words, from just logic, from just um, intellectual thought. But the Psalms are what we can point to in the morning when we say, we don't do this because the people up front like to show off their voice or their piano playing skills, or we don't do this to like frustrate people in the congregation who get up early in the morning only have to only have to like start singing randomly. Like, what is this West Side Story in here? Come on, got up to this? No, we do this because there is a significant part of Scripture, and I mean significant both in the sense of really important and like stinking huge, that offers us this model of response that strongly convicts us that worship is a critical discipline in the life of Christ. I've been assured by Nick that this is a coincidence, um, at least from like a human leadership planning perspective, but I think it is laughably appropriate that all of the messages you will hear in this Psalms mini-series uh, are being shared by people who were involved in Illini Life's musical worship ministry at one point or another. Like that entire practice has its foundation in the Psalms. It's almost like, so some of you may have grown up in churches kind of like this one, uh, which, you know, in sort of a non-denominational feel and have what we might call a contemporary worship setting, you know, sort of guitars, pianos, drums, that whole thing. And so, like, you know, you've, we've all heard sort of the cliche, the worship leader gets up and is like, let's lift a shout of praise. Guess what? Psalm 100 was doing that before it was cool, right? And then statistically speaking, if you were in one of these in the last 15 years, you'd probably sing, you know, 10,000 reads, bless the Lord, oh my soul, that one. Psalms 103, 104, even if it's not projected on the wall, where it was. As a quick tangent, so there are several psalms. We aren't entirely sure who wrote them. Uh, the ones we're going to look at today, Psalm 1 is one of them. But we're pretty sure that a good many of them were written by David. And not one of the 60 Davids we have here, but David, <laughs> God's appointed king of Israel. Um, and we spent this time learning about him last, about, you know, around this time last year in a line of life if you were with us. 
Um, like we say, we like to say they are ascribed to David. Um, and if you can know anything about David, you can be very sure that the Psalms weren't just David's attempt to get like a hot record deal um, and start doing music professionally, right? That's a, yeah, that's a deep cut. Anyone on that one? David's life story is one of highs, one of lows. He was an enthusiastic servant of God who sought the Lord's will in all things, but he was also deeply human. He was flawed. He experienced despair. And in times when he sinned, maybe he felt a little distance from God. Maybe that's something that feels familiar to you. And he responded. And so that's why, in addition to being a framework for worship, the Psalms are a framework for reflecting on and responding to God's word and God's law. Now, I can tell you there was absolutely a time where a Bible book about responding to God's law would have sounded either really boring or really scary to me. Um, like with apologies to like my pre-law folks in here, 150 chapters of reflecting on the law just does not sound like a vibe to me. Um, I'm sorry, unless I like don't know what a vibe is. But anyways, so Psalm 1 offers a unique position on the idea of reflecting on and responding to the law of God. And without further background, I think we should read it together. So if you want to take out your Bible and or turn on your Bible app, again, we're going to be in Psalm 1 this morning. The words will be on the screen. And Psalm goes like this. Blessed is the man, a woman or, or child or whatever, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Six verses, but they sure don't pull their punches, huh? What a way to open a book. So what do we see here? What stands out? Well, for one thing, tons of imagery, Tons of figurative language, right? Oh, the blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields fruit. Its leaves don't wither. Like my Enres and my Aggie folks are all like, I've been training for this day my entire life. <laughs> right? It communicates further the notion that there's emotion driving this. This is image. This is aesthetics. There's human spirit driving this. But we see a few other big words, big ideas that pop up a few times, right? Those are blessed and wicked, or if you like, righteous and wicked. And it's easy to take a look at that part and without any further context and initially dismiss the psalm as just a checklist for good behavior. Right? If I'm doing this, I'm okay. If I'm not doing this, I'm not okay. Moving on, what's in Psalm 2? But we lose something very important if we don't look at this psalm in the context of the other psalms to come. And that's part of why we're starting our church-wide study of psalms here at the beginning. So the first two psalms in the book of psalms are considered sort of the introductory psalms. Right? That's generally how they're referred to um, in academic discourse and commentary. They're, right, they're, they're kind of like how every Star Wars movie starts with that opening crawl of text that kind of goes up into the sky or in, up, out into space. Right? They kind of give you all the information you need to understand the story where you jump in. Here in this first psalm, we get, we get sort of an opening crawl for the whole book of psalms writ large. And if we were to actually write that crawl out, it might go a little something like this. 
a long time ago in a galaxy, far, this one actually, this galaxy right here, God created the universe. And then sometime later, he gave the Israelites, his chosen people, his law for them to follow. Now this law, the Torah is the Hebrew term, is not just a checklist of do's and don'ts, but it's an instructional guide, a form of teaching. This law is meant to teach God's people how to live according to how they were created to live, in harmony with their creator. One of those responses is righteousness and will cause things to go well for them. The other of those responses is wickedness and will not cause things to go well for them. A psalmist seeks to describe these two responses to God's law in hopes that more people can recognize the difference. And then pan down, you got the big old John Williams score, the starter story going through the whole thing. In other words, every response we see to the Lord in Psalms from here on out is going to deal with this dynamic in some way, right? What is blessed? What is righteous? What is wicked? How do we know? And how do we respond? Well, that's what we're here for. That's what this book is here for. And here's the thinger. The Psalms are just as divinely inspired and important to the life of a Christ follower as the rest of scripture. We're supposed to understand that our response to the law, and not just our knowledge of it or our reading of it, our response to it matters. And that not all responses are created equal. So as I mentioned, the psalmist walks us through two types of responses. But the first is found in the first three verses. Let's take a look at those again together. Ready? We got, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So we have this response that leads to blessing, that leads to righteousness. Um, and that is a response that delights in the law of the Lord. And based on what we've just read, I'm not blowing any minds with this reading, I don't think. It's plain as day, it's easy to see, right? The psalm sets up a very cut and dry cause and effect structure here. Delight in the law of the Lord, and you will prosper. But if it were in practice, that cut and dry wouldn't be terribly good at, like, inspiring a psalm, right? So there are some clarifying things we need to dig into. First off, very briefly, we need to stop and talk about this word prosper at the end here. So our cultural setting has taken words like prosper and prosperous and made them very material, right? If we're prospering, we take that to sort of mean like an American dream situation, rolling in the Benjamins, working at a high level job, um, nice house, spouse and kids, a, you know, a dog year two, all of that. Other Psalms are like really other parts of scripture get into this more directly. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but it's important to know that it's not the American dream at stake here, right? I just want us to understand that. Um, going out of this. It's important to see that at the end game of the psalm, we're looking at receiving and outflowing of God's blessing. To prosper here means to have well-being in the Lord. But either way, how do we get there, right? That's, that's, that's what we're looking at. Meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. And by meditate, the Hebrew refers to something along the lines of muttering or vocalizing Right, word meditate shows up several times in the New Testament. You could run a word study on that. It's a fascinating thing. Um, but what we want to understand for today is that it's more than just reading it and knowing it. It's internalizing it repeatedly. 
so that we can pull it out under our breath at a moment, as if under our breath at a moment's notice. All right, so looking at the test, we've got two sort of contrasting images here, right? On the one side, we've got this phrase, sitting in the seat of scoffers, or standing in the way of sinners. And we can think of that as just like you're standing in the middle of a crowd, they're all sinning, they're not making decisions that are, that are righteous or that, that are meditating on the word of the Lord. Um, and we're just sort of standing there doing nothing. We may not be engaged in what they're talking about or, what, or the decisions they're making or what they're learning, um, but we have not actively made the choice to be in the word and we're just kind of standing along with the other people. And then on this other side, we've got the image of this tree, right? This is the weird one, right? The tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. So when we were standing in this way of cinders and sitting in the seat of scoffers, we were allowing things to happen to us, right? We were letting our environment dictate what we thought about, what we talked about, by the company we kept, by the influence of others. When we move away from that and we go into this tree planted by streams of water yielding its fruit, we're doing two things. We're not only rejecting that notion of passivity, right? We're choosing to meditate. We're choosing to be in the word. We're choosing to sit in the water that develops us. And what's more, our meditation at that point, our faith walk has consequences. To yield fruit, it's going to have like severe implications, not even severe implications, but strong implications for understanding who we are as believers. It's going to it's, it's the kind of meditation and the kind of knowledge of the word and internalization of the word that's going to make people who are not Christ followers be like, I don't know what's with that person. I don't know what's different about that person, but I like it and I want it in my life. Right. In other words, we're playing an active role in our reflection and our response. We are committing to reflection each and every day. It's something we're choosing time and time again. We want to understand that worship and reflection on the Lord is deliberate and not passive. It's not something we allow to happen to us or to be externally influenced in. And I don't know about you all, but I find that a hard choice to make like every day. Like to say one time, like, yeah, sure, I, I profess the power of Christ. Um, I understand the need to be fed by scripture. I can come in on Sunday and say those things all the time. Tomorrow when I get in my car and I have to choose between like turning on the audio Bible for my commute or turning on some cool movie podcast instead, like how many people would pick the movie podcast? Like, let, let's just be honest, right? It's, it's, it is a choice. It's deliberate. It's work. But we are told that that's the kind of meditation, that's the kind of relationship with the word of God and the law of God that will bear fruit and keep us in righteousness. To just be in the word and to just know the word and be able to pull out scripture for the sake of it isn't enough. Are we doing it every day? Are we internalizing it as a part of our lives? So we've talked about one response, right? This deliberate re-engagement day in and day out into the word. Now let's see what the psalm has to say about the other kind of responses that we're going to pick up in verse four now. The wicked 
are not so. But they're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked is another sort of term that culture has sort of expanded to be a very hedonistic, you are doing bad, evil, sadistic things like Wicked Witch of the West, you know, the musical Wicked, that, that whole sort of thing. Um, and obviously, yeah, that would fall into what we're talking about. But I think this passage wants us to think a little bit more broadly about things that are wicked. And we're basically called to understand that it's anything that's not righteous, right? It's anything that's not helping us make that choice day in and day out to meditate on God's law and have it bear fruit. The passage says the wicked are like chaff. Does anyone know what chaff is? Like I said, my, my Aggie friends have been waiting for this day their whole lives. So it's basically, as I'm understanding it, and please like call me out if this is wrong, but it's basically like the outer shell or like a husk of maybe like a wheat, a sweet stalk or a corn. It's thing that like you know stays on as 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 a, as a plant that will eventually become delicious food, grows up into the ground. Um, but then it kind of sheds this outer material on the outside, right? And that material just kind of blows away. Nobody and nobody thinks about it. Um, and the thing with that sort of external shell, that external messiness is it's not helping anybody. Um, it has no real purpose for the food, you know, or for the plant after a certain point. And it doesn't stick around for long, right? It's gone pretty quickly in the development process of and the psalm is clear here. Do choosing not to reflect on the law of the Lord makes us about as good as that outer shell, that shaft. Because if we think about it, like making the like we can either make the choice to reflect on the on the word of the Lord every day, or we can make the choice not to. Um, and we may find excuses for that. <laughs> the Lord knows I do. But it's, a, but it's a choice we make. And we're told that doing things that aren't helping us to reflect on the law in that way make us like chaff, which means we're not bearing fruit. There are no consequences for our faith. There's no, out, there's no outward influence that our faith puts out. We're not helping anyone out and we're not sticking around for very long, right? The way of the wicked will perish. These choices that we're making for joy and for satisfaction and for um, rest and peace in things other than the Lord will serve our purposes for a short time and then they will die off. And this, I think, helps us take a passage, this passage out of a reading of like, do this and you're blessed. Do this and you are wicked. Instead, we're asking the question, regardless of what the action is, what fruit are you producing? That's where our head is. What, ha what things have you internalized? What truths, what values, what hope have you internalized that will let you bear fruit, that will let you have an influence on others, that will let you nourish others, will secure you into the ground like a tree or a field of wheat, and will let you feed people for generations.
So for a small part of my life, um, very briefly, um, I taught private guitar lessons for a little while, right? Very short time, but people would come in, usually people around my age, sometimes a little younger, um, and they want to, you know, figure out how the guitar works. They knew I played and they wanted to kind of figure that out, um, get a little bit of time in. And one of the things I had my students do almost every single week, and if you are, do I have music students in here? Like people who took guitar lessons, piano lessons, so one of the things I had my students do every single week is they had to play scales, arpeggios, like all the boring things using a metronome, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> Maddie is two steps ahead of me. Look at this. So if you don't know what a metronome is, um, it's this really obnoxious uh, clicking thing. that just kind of goes in this rhythmic four beat pattern over and over again. And I needed students to play scales, play every song that they brought in, every exercise they brought in while this thing was going on. And I'd ask them, did you play your scales? I'd say, yeah. Then I'd say, did you do it with, with a metronome? I'd get this look. Right, I'd say, so David, there are two things I think you need to understand, my students would tell me. Number one, uh, I didn't take guitar lessons to learn scales. I took guitar lessons to like learn how to play Smoke on the Water and all these cool Metallica licks that I figured out. Um, and the second thing you need to understand is that the metronome is obnoxious and annoying and I hate it. Um, it provides me no joy to play along with it. The clicking is really annoying. And I'll bet there are at least five people in here who are ready to beat me up for leaving this on the spot. <laughs> Number one, <laughs> right? It's a, it's, a, it's a choice they had to make. I said, that's fine, I understand. And we will get the smoke on the water and that cool stuff eventually. But this is why I ask you to play with the metronome, right? The metronome does not have preferences. The metronome doesn't have temptations. It's going to keep you solidly in rhythm, grounded, in the language of the music and the language of the rhythm you need to be in. And without the ability to play these sort of fundamental things day in and day out, without your ability to play your scales, your basic exercises, um, the things that aren't necessarily like super fun, you're gonna blow away, right? Because I could, like I could just teach you smoke on the water and I could teach you the fun stuff. But what's gonna happen is you'll show up to a big crowd of people, um, some of whom may be trying to get your number or something, I don't know. You'll play Smoke on the Water, and then you will have no further use to them as a musician. Because you, you aren't grounded in the language of your craft. You aren't grounded in the things you need to come up with original ideas, to bless people with your creative spirit. You know how to do one thing, and then you've outlived your purpose. you'll go away. You'll no longer be invited to those parties. You'll no longer be considered um, a musician who knows what they're doing. So what's the call here, right? We don't want to be something that goes away, uh, which means we got to be the opposite. We got to be something that sticks around. What we want to take away from this is that in addition to being something we choose, worship and reflection, 
just like doing the boring parts of a hobby or of a skill or of a craft is resilient and not subject to circumstance. What we talked about, it doesn't stand in the way of sinners. It doesn't depend on the environment around itself. It doesn't depend on what you feel like doing that day. You do it simply because you have chosen to do it and because you know you will nourish people if you do. And likewise, if you hold fast to it, others won't be able to hold on to literally save their lives. Like I said, I tell students, you can learn how to play smoke on the water, you can learn how to do the cool stuff that's fun right now. But until you've done the work, until you've committed to yourself to routinely internalizing the foundations of your craft, because it's the thing you've been called to do, and because it's, it will allow you to nourish yourself and revitalize yourself um, and bring new things to different people. Your use will stop there. You'll stop bearing musical fruit. And so will we if we aren't in the word every day. So will we if our relationship to God's law is not one of, I'm going to jump back in. Random tangent, I was playing like Super Mario 64 the other day where you like jump into the paintings to enter the levels. Um, I don't know. Random story, but that's just kind of, that's, that's the image I get, right? I'm going to jump into that painting no matter how hard the level was. Even after it stops being fun. <laughs> kind of reframes wickedness though, right? Like when we go through our weeks now, how many things can we say? Well, did I act in a righteous way? Did I act in a did I act in a wicked way? Sure, I didn't, I haven't like hurt anybody this week. I haven't come in and um, violated any major human rights issues. I haven't done anything that by our hedonistic cultural standards might be considered bad. But how long is it sticking around? Are you feeling the consequences of it still? So as we wrap up now, um, what I want to do is I want us to take this sort of righteousness, wickedness binary that the psalm sets up, and I want us to come blow back out now. Look at the psalms as a whole. Look at scripture as a whole, even. Let's take it back to a larger scale. So in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at a few other psalms. Um, they're well-known psalms, psalms you've heard before, psalms that maybe have registered in your life on some level. Um, and each of them have a different framework. Each of them has a different thing we should take away about the relationship between God and ourselves. But as we prepare to go through them together, these are some of the questions I want us to think about. What are some things we can be looking at for when we read psalms? What makes these verses, what makes these works significant parts of a Christ follower's life? What makes them different than the worship songs we sing every morning? We want to be looking for images which capture the relationship between us and God. The psalmist could have compared us to anything. Why do you pick a tree? We should be looking for responses to our own temptation to fall away from God. And not on a mac not even necessarily on a macro, um, you know, lose the faith or lose your worldview perspective. But what happens when we choose something 
out of exhaustion, out of frustration, out of out of maybe loneliness or sadness that doesn't bear fruit. What, what is our response to that? And the third and most exciting thing we can be looking out for is signs of the unconditional goodness and faithfulness of God. Because as we've learned from the New Testament, which to hear some people say it has nothing to do with the Old Testament, we have, we have a model for the righteousness, right? We have a model for the person who went in day in and day out in spite of trials, in spite of tribulations. Um, he meditated on the word of the Lord. He internalized the scriptures. He could teach it. He could apply it. Um, and holy moly, did he bear fruit because of it. It's, it's, it's Jesus and talking about Jesus. So going through this, we could be th- we could be thinking of what's our tree? What are the tree friendly things in our life? What are the things that are helping us stand firm, not be coaxed by our environment into going for something shorter term? What's the chaff in your life? What are the things that are helpful now or comforting now but will blow away in due time and never be of help to you or anyone else again? It's difficult to answer that question because like. Everyone in here has an answer for at least one of those. You may not have wanted to admit it to yourself yet, but I want to challenge you this week. Let one bit of chaff blow away that you wouldn't have done before, right? Make the choice for one additional day to be in the word, to have a spiritual, to have, you know, a conversation with a trusted friend about where you are spiritually. Be willing to be challenged and grown in one new way this week. Because when we do that, we have a we will start to have a stronger understanding of what these psalms, what these psalmists, um, and what their responses to the, the the mystery and the wonder of God and what He's done on the earth um, are really all about.